You're welcome. Yeah, Siri chimed in. Did you hear that? I did. <laughs> Siri said, you're welcome. I We didn't ask you, but all right. Mark Graben and Jamie Flinchball are two guys drinking whiskey while chatting about lean ideas, experiences, and news. Let's hope they hold their liquor because they're not holding back on sharing their opinions. It's time for Lean Whiskey, Lean Talk with the Fun Spirit. Well, hi, welcome to episode 44 of Lean Whiskey. I'm Mark Graben, and we're joined by... I'm Jamie Flinchball. Good to see you. Good to see you, Jamie. Um, halfway through January here. Um, Larry David says it's too late in the year to say Happy New Year, but I'm going to say it anyway. Sure. Well, you know, it's uh, uh, it's always a first conversation where it's the Happy New Year. And, you know, should you still say that in February? Probably not. But I think there's plenty of people still adjusting. Um, we're only a couple weeks in. And he, Larry David dragged out a whole episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm about how late was too late. <laughs> it's kind of nitpicky little issue, you know. What makes that show great. But I think what makes this show fun is that we talk about a lot of different things. So here is the rundown of what we're talking about today. This is a recent Kaizen, if you will, not to leave you wondering and guessing what's on the agenda for today. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about old bottles of whiskey, what we're drinking tonight. And then I, I think we'll have time for two in the news topics. One, maybe on the lighter side, people talk about New Year's resolutions and then we're also going to talk about uh, inspections at Boeing. More inspections, uh, will that help? And then we're going to have a, little, a couple of quick, fun questions about football at the end. So that's what's on, on tap. We do plan these out, even if it... Yeah, so this should prove it, right? Uh, for those that wonder if we just talk about whatever comes to our minds, uh, hey, we, 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 we said we had a plan at the beginning. And if we don't follow the plan, then call us on it. But I think we will. So Jamie had the idea of um, this first topic, old old bottles. Kind of tell us what prompted that, Jamie. Yeah, so uh, there was an auction, um, an estate auction um, of, I'll say, a, a family friend, nobody I know directly, um, who was really a, quite the collector of antique stuff, particularly York County, where I where I grew up. And, and I, I, I looked through it for a little bit, and there was a, there was a still filled a uh, bottle of whiskey um, from uh, Welsh, uh, Welsh and company. And, um, you know, it, you could tell that there was some evaporation from it. Uh, it. You know, there were no rules back then. So you don't know if they bought barrels or if they distilled it. But um, but it was a bottle of whiskey produced in York County, uh, certainly 150 years ago. Um, wow. It does, doesn't have a year on it, but it's it, it, it's quite old. So, so I think we, we briefly um, toyed with the idea of going in uh, for uh, auction on it. Um, thought about it. it. Thought about it. Um, it was an interesting idea. I certainly watched the bottle through auction, but it, it took over $900 to bring home. Um, yeah, so, uh, you know, that's, that's a, a, pretty price for whiskey if uh a you're not going to drink it and b you don't even know really anything about it so yeah yeah 
Um, yeah, it's it's a it's a hefty price to pay for a bottle of whiskey that is prized and well known, and you know it's taken care of. Let alone let alone this. Yeah, because I, I I tried just searching Google and couldn't really find anything about the company or I think it's too old to have any sort of uh, information about it. Right. Right. And, you know, Pennsylvania was the, you know, one of the distilling distilling centers in, in the, in the United States way yeah. back when. So uh, no surprise that there was some local, local stuff. Um, and I'm really curious. We, we will have no idea if the person who bought it plans to store it even longer uh, as a historical piece or plans to open it out of deep curiosity. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a risk either way, right? Is somebody buying it for a collection? Are they hoping to maybe flip it or resell it someday? Are they, are they willing to, are they willing to drive it? I mean, you, 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 you drew kind of a parallel to cars. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I'm a, big Porsche fan. And if, you know, if, as, as Jerry Seinfeld says, whoever has the lowest mileage Porsche 911 when they die loses. <laughs> and, and his point is they're meant to be driven, right? Don't yeah. leave it in the garage, but as soon as you drive it, it's also worthless. So, you know, uh, Star Wars figures in a box, you know, worth more play with it. It's a toy. Yeah. Uh, whiskey meant to be me- meant to be consumed. Uh, worth more left in the bottle. So, um, it, it, you know, it was, I think it's important to note, it probably wasn't very good whiskey to begin with. Um, you know, they didn't, they weren't really known from a manufacturing technique uh, the, to make great whiskey back then. Um, and, you know, to really know that it's been cared for for at least 150 years, stayed out of heat, stayed out of sunlight, very unlikely. Yeah. Now, when you were in town, we went to a place nearby in Covington, Kentucky, a Revival Bottle Shop. Do you remember the oldest thing that you sampled when, when we were there? Because it, it's this place that sell, buys and sells old bottles and um, quite often has them opened up where they're selling them by the, the half ounce pour. Yeah, I can't remember if it was the 70s or the 60s. I think a 60s Jim Beam, maybe. That sounds, um, that sounds right. Yeah. But, you know, obviously this person, uh, you know, the, the, the owner has to know enough to know how to take that risk. Mm-hmm. And uh, he also likes to share what happens to an old bottle that wasn't taken care of. Right. With a <laughs> that, little, little sniff. Um, there's and, there, yeah. There's one that smells like your, your grandparents musty basement. Yeah. So, I, you know, I don't know how many bottles he's uh, you know, opened only to find out he got uh, not not necessarily deliberately uh, uh, manipulated, but somebody brought him a bad bottle because they didn't know and they didn't want to store. Yeah. Uh, but you see this even online. People are like, hey, I found this in my grandparents closet and it's, you know, Ballantines, right? <laughs> um, but it's a really old bottle. Well, so it's funny that you mentioned Ballantines because uh, at Revival Bottle Shop, they do a pretty cool thing there where if you happen to order something and it finishes off the bottle, they'll generally offer to let you take the bottle home because sometimes it, it's kind of a museum looking piece, even though it's empty. And so I'm going to hold up for the camera. Those who are just listening, 
uh, can't see it. This is a Ballantine's. They could only date it as precisely as the 1940s or 50s. Okay. Era. Um, it tasted fine. Like it certainly <laughs> wasn't spoiled. It wasn't the greatest thing I'd ever tasted, but you can also tell from part of the, the era that it's got kind of the Royal uh, seal on here and it's by appointment uh, to the late Queen Victoria and the late King Edward um, the seventh. Nice. So this was probably right after Queen Elizabeth had been. Uh, um, what's the word? Crowned. Uh, crowned. I don't know if that's right, but works. Made queen. <laughs> <laughs> Coronation. Coronated. Coronation. There you go. But she became queen. Anyway, history lesson for another day. But um, it, I, I, it's interesting to look at these bottles. But, you know, speaking of, of London, um, there, there was a hotel bar in London that had a prohibition era medicinal bottle hmm. of uh, bourbon uh, available for the taste. And it was certainly cool to look at. They let me hold the bottle and, and kind of check it out. And they might have even let me take a smell, but it, it seemed like two, I mean, it was a couple hundred dollars. And, and so like, it was too risky. I didn't want the bragging rights of it that. Yeah. Um, that's, that's really, as they say, for the gram, right? That's that's just to show everybody that you did it. But I, that's a lot for just curiosity because um, it's probably, again, not that great. Um, uh, but, you know, and, and, and there's got to be bottles, you know, around, around here. But, uh, yeah, all Prohibition era whiskey, wa- bourbon was, uh, uh, was medicinal by legal definition but that's that's probably about it so yeah but i i love the revival bottle shop i wish i had something like that near me it's a yeah. super cool idea but obviously he has to have people bringing bottles in to sell and you're more likely to experience that in kentucky than you are in pennsylvania yeah so hope you can get back here soon jamie yeah that's the goal so uh yeah, so we did not buy that bottle. Um, I did I did bid on a watch uh, that I was looking at, and I thought if I could get that for a steal, it might be worth it, but I got outbid, so I think somebody yeah. else had the same idea for a Longines uh, military watch. But um, on to uh, our whiskey. Um, we, uh, we, we, I think we've been wanting to do this for a while. <laughs> But uh, finally got around to it and needed to plan it out. But um, two bottles of the same expression, uh, same distillery, same expression, uh, maybe different years or or whatever that might be. So so that's uh, that's what we're so we, we're both starting off with two fours. Um, yeah. Mine are mine are already in their glasses uh, <laughs> next to each other. Uh, for yeah. sure. Which one is which? Uh, I didn't put labels on it, but. Shouldn't uh, well, that'll be the last time I hold up both at the same time, so I'll remember yeah. which is which. So, uh, so yeah, fun. I, you know, what's interesting is the, the bottles I have are behind me over their shoulder, yeah, for those on, on camera. Um, and and I've had some of both, but I've never had them next to each other. So, so this is actually the first time I'm, I'm trying this, um, uh, as, as I've done it. So, I went with uh, the, the Knob Creek. Um, you know, not a, not a terribly hard to find, um, 
you know, bourbon, at least the nine year, which is kind of their, I'll say primary expression, right? If somebody's I've had Knob Creek, it's probably what they drank was the, mm-hmm. the nine year. And then I also have the 12 year. Uh, and, you know, fortunately, cause this can make a big difference. They're both hundred proof. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not like one's a, one's a single barrel or anything like that. It's basically hopefully the, you know, pretty much the same thing, just different, different age, uh, ages. And, you know, by color, um, I'm only just getting around to the sipping, but by color, uh, they're, they're they are quite similar. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I would mix them up if I didn't pay attention to where they are. Uh, that, you can, that's an interesting experiment of, of how much difference does three years make, as opposed to comparing, say, the nine and the eighteen. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's it's uh, but it but you know tasting them on, on the on on the eye, they don't look very different, but tasting it, um, you, you definitely get more depth, um, from, from, from the 12 year, uh, you get, uh, you know, a a little more that molasses like rich sweetness, um, uh, than you do in the nine year, uh, both, both good. And I'd have to say, you can kind of tell, yeah, you can tell they're the same expression. Not sure if I could do a blind, but um, yeah, but but they're they're very similar. But I'd say, yeah, if I was gonna, I don't remember what I paid for either one. So uh, taking price out of the equation, like the twelve year better. Yeah, um, those are both blended from a large enough number of barrels that they're Jim Beam. They're they're trying to create a consistent taste, right? Consistent flavor profile. So so you're. That that is probably very much an apples to apples comparison of of what you um, have there. The Knob Creek brand is probably pretty consistent over time. But you know, even thinking back to the opportunity I had in October to visit Jim Beam and um, the distillery, and and um, Fred No was talking about how back in the day people thought nothing really should be aged more than five or six years, and I'm sure that Knob Creek Nine was kind of at the high end of age statements when that brand was released. Now people have that reaction when they hear about like 20 or 23 or 26 year aged bourbons. Yeah. And, and to be fair, you know, the ability to control it, the risk you had from fire and, and other things, even theft. Um, uh, the, I don't know as much about the history of cooperage, but did you have greater losses through evaporation? Um and, and, and even aftermarket, right, the distribution and, and, and care that happened afterwards, I think a lot of people were looking for a good bourbon. They weren't looking for, um, you know, a top shelf bourbon. That just wasn't a thing um, yeah. back then. So really, why bother? You know, once it's good enough, why bother? Um, yeah. I, I think it's probably the, the tone set back then. Yeah. Well, so, and then. I was going to say on the topic of Knob Creek, though, I want to give another shout out to a different bourbon bar real close to me. It's in uh, Bellevue, Kentucky. Uh, it's called Three Spirits Tavern. And the thing that's fantastic, if not a little bit crazy, is on Friday nights, this, the, and, and this this always struck me as like a Tuesday night <laughs> promotion to get people in the door. On Friday night, you can do a flight for 60% off the regular poor price. So you'd be nuts to just 
order a Knob Creek 12 when you can put together a flight. And I did this one night of the 12, 15 and 18, you know, for, for 60% off what the combined price of those, they, they probably do one ounce pours, I think. Um, so it's fun to compare, you know, the side by side. And like I've heard people say about other uh, bourbons and, and expressions, the sweet spots often in the middle. Like mm-hmm. I, I remember the 15 being the clear favorite. The 18 starts tasting really woody. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I do think there, there's certainly diminishing returns at, at, at best, right, for, for age. Uh, I don't think it, it's, it's a linear progression, but there can be diminishing returns, too, um, where, you know, it just kind of loses its, its, its sharpness or, or whatever that might be. And so, um, yeah, never buy the cheapest version, but probably never buy the, the, the highest aging um, I think that's fair since I already brought it up. I think that's fair for Porsches as well. Um, yeah. You know, don't buy, don't buy a base. If you're buying a Porsche, don't buy the base, buy the S, right? But you don't need, you don't need to go all the way to the, to the top, top shelf upgrades on that either. Does the same thing apply to watches? Uh, no, cause there, there's rarely different versions of the same thing. There's there, there are. But often it's, you know, hey, do you want the steel or do you want the gold? Um, so it's it's just a matter of taste uh, rather than what's better. Um, but I'm not a collector. I'm really a gatherer or an accumulator. Gather, uh, collectors buy and sell. Um, and so I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a whiskey collector. I don't buy and sell. I buy and consume. So... So it makes things pretty different to watch world swell. So uh, I, I accumulate. I don't, I don't, I don't sell. Um, yeah. So, but yeah, for resale, that's probably, it probably is true. There's probably some truth to that um, in, in the, in the watch world as well. So you went, uh, you went a different route with something where there is probably quite a bit of difference. I'm going to guess. Yeah. With, with a scotch. So it, it, it's not going to be an apples to apples comparison because of the difference in age and um, finishing. Um, mm-hmm. So I didn't have bottles of Knob Creek sitting around. I didn't have um, the, 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 the closest I could find and still keeping close enough to the theme is two different Glen Scotia scotches, um, which are produced in Campbelltown um, by a Glen Scotia distillery, which I had a chance to visit um, 2022 and so I think the, the the color differences may be a little more distinct in the bottle. Yep. Now I'm holding up and, and there's lights. But the the younger whiskey is the darker color, but that's because the the tenure here is a special release, limited edition, finished in Bordeaux red wine casks. So that that more reddish color, similar to what you would see in a sherry finished whiskey, it just tends to be a little bit. Um, redder, and 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 this one's um, uh, almost even probably cask strength, even though I don't see it labeled that way. It's uh, ten years unpeated, fifty six point one percent ABV, mm. and then uh, the second one is their uh, eighteen year classic Campbelltown malt. So this has no special finishing. It's probably eighteen years in an ex bourbon barrel, and uh, it's bottled at forty six. 
5% ABV. So it's, um, they're both unpeated. You know, I think the, the, the wine barrel finish could be power of suggestion. It does have a little more sweetness to it. Sure. And the 18 years, just more of that very crisp, malty, this is classic, um, what I think, uh, really nice unpeated scotch should taste like. Yeah. But not getting woody because, you know, the 18 years in Scotland doesn't have the same effect as 18 years in Kentucky. It's not as aggressively aged and pushed in and out of the barrel. Well, and, and, and they're not using, you know, virgin barrels. So the, the barrels, not, you know, the temperature changes aren't as, as big, but also the barrel is not as aggressive. Um, because they're, right. they're looking really for the, the 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 whiskey to do its own thing, um, and and bourbon is largely about the barrel, not all about the barrel at all. But it, you know, there's a lot more about the barrel in in bourbon. So, but I, but I find you know 18, you know, if you had to pick my favorite aging statement for a scotch, I'd say 18 is it. I find 15, 18 is sort of my sweet spot. 21, I love, but, you know, 21 and up, I love, but definitely diminishing returns for the price and sort of 12, 12 year and down, you know, that's, that's an, you know, perfectly fine, but, you know, you, you don't, it doesn't feel quite as special as that 15 to 18. Um, and, and you, you know, obviously it depends on distilleries. I find some distilleries reach that peak point sooner. Like I've always believed Dalmore you know, there, you know, 18 isn't worth it. The 12 to 15s mm-hmm. are, are a great sweet spot for Dalmore. But, um, but yeah, an 18, 18 year old Glen Scotia, that's, that's right up my alley. Yeah. Um, really recommend it. And I think the Campbelltown region is one that people probably haven't heard of as much as Isla or Speyside or, you know, Highlands or Lowlands. There's, I believe only three, without Googling it, only three distilleries in uh, the Campbelltown region. Okay. Which is really mostly centered around the town of Campbelltown, right. as opposed right. to being like out in the country, like some of the other distilleries are. Right. Yeah. And Campbelltown has its own, you know, just like uh, uh, other regions, you know, it definitely has its own distinct style. Um, and, and, and I think, you know, probably for the, the first time scotch drinker, probably a good place to start. Mm-hmm. You know, I think a lot of people start on the, the Talisters and the Lafroigs and they, they probably shouldn't. Um, yeah. But I'd maybe start with, uh, you know, the Campbelltown type of things like, like Glen Scotia, mm-hmm. which, you know, yeah, it's not going to be the average thing you pull off the shelf at a restaurant, but if yeah. you want to buy a bottle, you know, start there. All right, so that's what we're drinking, and we're going to continue sipping here. Is uh, see, we talk a little process. We talk process <laughs> with the whiskey. Um, all right, but we're going to talk about a couple things that were in the news. Yeah, so um, you know, on a lot of people's minds right now, um, you know, they might notice that we're not practicing dry January, um, right. which is a uh, you know, kind of interestingly, dry, dry January is is like a New Year's resolution that you only plan to last a month on. 
Um, and, uh, and, it, and it really is almost meant to imply that you've had too much in December. Um, so, so we're not doing that. But we are going to talk about resolutions and their, uh, their cousin, the goal. Yeah. <laughs> the goal or objective. So um, you had found a, a fun, uh, we're going to include in the show notes for those that, that, that follow along with show notes, a fun NPR bit uh, where NPR was talking, talking to actual people about New Year's resolutions that didn't even last two weeks. Yeah. And so whether it's a New Year's resolution and very personal whether it's a New Year's resolution that's more of a professional goal or it's a company goal or a team goal that you're setting, you know, fundamentally, it's all the same thing, right? Yeah. We're, we're, we're staking a claim on an aspiration and then going after it. Um, but um, resolutions uh, are famously um, poorly Poorly executed, um, which is why gym memberships yeah. make you sign up for a year. Right. Um, and nobody can nobody can find a set of weights in the gym because it's everything's occupied for about two weeks. Yeah. And then people stop going and it all disappears. So that's that's pretty common. So I personally have never been much of a resolution person. Um because a resolution to me is just an intent and mm -hmm. there's often very little plan behind it. Um, so, so I generally don't set, set resolutions, but I will set goals at least most mm -hmm. years on all sorts of different fronts. Yeah. So do you do one, both or the or combination? Well, I mean, there's times when I've had resolutions that have popped up mid year because I decided I, needed to make some sort of change. I mean, I think January is a natural time to reflect at the end of the year, um, think a little bit about starting or, or strengthening habits. So, I mean, you know, in January, I, um, well, you know, first off, you we talk about the gym. This is an ongoing thing I should be focused on. Doing yoga every day for 30 minutes, that's been really good for my lower back and um, want to, you know, so there's, there's positive reinforcement to do that. And then to get to the gym and sweat, you know, and to do that nearly every day. So again, those should be just good habits, definitely not a January thing, but maybe similar, maybe this will become a thing like dry January and, you know, I applaud or appreciate anybody who um, is doing that. I, I, I decided to try to do a sugar-free January, which, you know, something, I mean, it's the general thing that I should be doing, you know, is avoiding sugar and not overdoing it. But I, I think one reflection, maybe this, this is helpful for others. I think somewhere around the fourth or the fifth, you know, we were at an event somewhere and, and I had something small that had sugar in it. So I, I certainly wasn't going to um, shame myself or spend too much time feeling bad about it. I think just acknowledging, all right, that was a little detour. Like that was no reason to say, well, I give up the resolution and I'm going to go drink a giant milkshake tomorrow. Yeah. But that's so that, but that is one of the primary failure modes in resolutions is they are, many of them are rather extreme. Yeah. Meaning they're beyond anything you've ever done before and beyond what's sustainable and reasonable. Right. Mm -hmm. So you, you found yourself 
you know, four days in having sugar, Because right? literally going a whole month without sugar, you almost have to live like a hermit and yeah. plan your meals for the whole month uh, in order to, to truly achieve that. And so, you know, a lot of resolutions like, hey, I haven't gone to the gym for three months. And then, boom, on what, uh, January 1st, I'm going to start going every day. It's, it's too dramatic. Right? And, oh. and so people don't set people set resolutions that are overly ambitious and binary. Right. Yeah. You either achieve it or you don't. And then when it's clear you're not going to achieve it, yeah, out it goes, right? You you just pop off because you have no chance of actually achieving, like you have no chance of achieving sugar-free January. Well, but so, by striving for that, I'm closer to sugar-free. Right. Then you know, I, I would have been otherwise. But I, I always I always say, I mean, um, I'm better at not bringing stuff home from the grocery store or not ordering it at the restaurant. But if it's in front of me and someone else has ordered it or there's, you know, if it's kind of a social thing, you know, like, well, I'm not going to be rude. Okay. <laughs> I've lost self-control if you put the sweets uh, right in front of me. So I guess the don't buy it um, strategy helps, but yeah, I mean the, the NPR piece talked about what you were saying, Jamie, of, of people, taking too big of a leap. I mean, somebody could literally hurt themselves if they go to the gym and work out too hard, too long um, that, that first time, or they're going to be too sore. And then there's disincentive um, to go, but they um, in that NPR piece also kind of talked about what I've heard Kaizen experts talk about the, the power of baby steps. Yes. Build new habits. I, I think back to the two times I interviewed uh, in my lean podcast, Robert Moore, who's a, a psychologist from UCLA, he's written two books about Kaizen and he really, really emphasizes the baby steps approach. So, you know, to summarize real quick, if, if somebody really hasn't been exercising and in their mind, you know, exercising means working out for an hour, that's going to feel intimidating. They're far less likely to go and do it. And what, what Dr. Moore brings people through is, is the baby steps of He'll literally tell patients, all right, you're watching TV on the couch, probably realistic scenario. Commercial comes on, get up and walk in place for the length of a commercial. That's 30 seconds of walking in place. Now, you're not going to get healthy only doing that. But mm -hmm. he found people don't find that intimidating. They're like, oh, I can do that. Then they start. Then it's two commercials. Then it's the entire commercial break. And you're, you're far more likely. It's, I think it's a good change management strategy. For yeah, yourself or others. And I think that's sort of the, the lean thinking applied to New Year's resolutions, which is you have to think about the how along with the what, right? So too many, too many resolutions are just outcome-based. Mm -hmm. Um and, and it's just about the what, but what's the how behind it? Right. So as an example, in my goal setting. Um, you know, I start to write out the how I'm going to achieve it. And I think there's two parts of this. One is, you know, begin with how, right? have a plan. So part of my, I'll say, fitness goal and plan, the how, is I'm calendaring what I'm going to do each day. Right? So I'm not, I'm not just saying oh, I'm going to exercise every day and then I wake up and I'm like, eh, I don't know what I want to do. And I think about it for 40 minutes and then I run out of time. So I have a calendar. I'm starting a calendar on my yeah. calendar. I'm going to do yoga this morning and tomorrow, 
Uh, it's a walk and then it's a hike and it's this and that, but it's calendar. And that's the beginning of it. The second part is building on it, right? When, you know, so, so my goal has essentially how many incidents of at least a 20 minute workout do I have in the first quarter? So mm -hmm. I have a goal, I have a tracking and I have a plan. And then I'll set a Q2 goal, which will build on it. And, and so I think the combination of paying attention to the how, but also not trying to, you know, plan out a, a journey that you've never been on, um, do it in stages, right? There's no need to, no need to figure out where you need to be December 31st, figure out where you need to be in a few weeks, figure out where you need to be in a few days, figure out where you need to be in a couple months, and then adjust from there. And, and that's much closer to us, I'll say, a lean thinking approach to goals and resolutions. Yeah. So there's, I mean, you, you could make a connection to the strategy of deployment. What are the core measures you're, you're trying to impact? And then what are the breakthrough initiatives or other improvements? Right. Actually reach the goals so that your annual goals aren't just hopes and dreams. Like if some health system said, hey, our goal this year is to reduce patient harm by 50%. Okay, you better have a plan. <laughs> better have a plan, and and that plan doesn't have to be all the answers, right? Sure. So, um, you know, especially if it's a wildly, I'll say, ill-defined, open-ended problem, it's like what are, your your first steps might be a combination of progress and more learning. Mm. Right? Mm -hmm. What? Where can we make? What? What do we know now that we can start to make progress on? And what learning do we need to do in order to make the next stage of the progress? And that sort of phase, right? And then, okay, we've, we've learned some stuff and we've made some progress. So we feel good about that. We can build on that. And uh, we've learned these things so we can build the next actions. And, and that's, you know, especially for, for goals and resolutions, there's sort of a premise where, you don't know how to be successful at it. That's why you bothered to set this goal. Yeah. If, if, if you already knew, just do it. Like just do what you need to do. But there's, a, there's sort of a premise, especially with our work goals and our, our business goals, that we don't know everything we need to do. So, um, you know, don't, don't pretend, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do these steps and then magically the next steps will appear. Mm -hmm. you know, what learning also has to occur? Right. So that could be that could be research that could be paying attention to your first steps. Right. So I'm looking at, you know, because I'm also writing down on my on my calendar, not just how often I'm exercising, but what I'm doing, I can find the right rhythm. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for example, you know, I've, I've really bad knees for those that are ever around me. They find that out pretty quickly. Really bad. I mean, my knees are twice as, you know, based on mileage, they're twice as old as I am. <laughs> So, you know, I can't, I can't do, uh, you know, a lot of weights or a lot of walking or anything like that, you know, multiple days in a row. So what's the right balance? Well, I, I have to learn that. I can't just assume that. So I'll learn that by paying attention to how the work is going on. Mm -hmm. So when we, when we build our, our goals, resolutions, whatever you want to call them, with a combination of, of action steps for progress and learning steps for figuring out the next action steps, we're much more likely to be successful because we just have to admit, we don't know everything we need to know to achieve what we set out to do. Yeah. I like that. So, I mean, for, for you, do you set, 
what people call a smart goal. I'm trying to remember. Do you have better recall on what the five letters? Well, so here's, here's a little trick. If people want to start Googling this is th they aren't consistent. There's a bunch of different versions. Oh. And so, of course, if there's a bunch of different versions, then it's almost meaningless, right? Um, but, 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 but most, most of the versions, many of the versions, the most popular set is, is specific, measurable, um, achievable, relevant, and time-bound. Now, my argument is that if you get, so I can talk about MT goals. If you get mm -hmm. measurable and time-bound, aren't you by definition specific? And, <laughs> sure. You know, so, so by definition, you, 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 you figure out the right measure and you put a clock on it. It's by definition specific at that point. Yeah. Um, if, if you're setting irrelevant goals, then we need to have a different conversation. I don't think we need a reminder for that. Yeah. Um, and then achievable is interesting because I actually don't think all our goals, I, I think, I, mm. Each goal should be achievable, but our set of goals should be ambitious. And what I mean by that is, you know, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna hit nine out of our twelve goals, whatever the number is. And some we're gonna fall short on, and some we're gonna succeed. We may not know which ones, mm -hmm. um, but uh, but but if we're always achieving our goals, did we did we push ourselves at all? Right. I I mean, I, th I think there's got to be a balance here. I mean, achievable is a judgment call. And I, th I think there's also the element of you know, how much fear is there, fear of not achieving what we've deemed achievable, because you know, I think there's a balancing act. We don't do ourselves any favors. I see a lot of healthcare organizations, they, they, they set a goal, hey, we're going to perform 2 or 3% better than last year. Mm -hmm. Well, then my statistical brain says like, well, that's that's clearly in the realm of noise in the metric there. I mean, 2% is probably for most measures, like statistically not a meaningful difference. Right. So then, you know, there's people who push back on, you know, the, the Paul O'Neill type goal of zero defects of saying, oh, well, well, that's not achievable. Therefore, it's demoralizing. And, you know, I think there's a middle ground. And, and when you celebrate the progress, like I think, for example, good health systems that were doing a lot of uh, rapid improvement events, um, a.k.a. Kaizen events, and they were taught and pushed to have, you know, a 50% improvement goal. Well, I, I went to some of those report outs. If someone achieved 42% improvement, that got huge applause and, you know, people weren't getting chewed out for not hitting the 50. But setting the goal of 50 compared to a goal of five really did stretch people's thinking. And let's go try things that are a little bit more radically different. So I think, you know, you, you got to find a balance. Um, but within a team, I'm sure you'd have a mix of mix of opinions of what what people think is achievable. Yeah. And, and I, I think we, we sometimes separate what we're using to plan and learn and 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 action versus what we're incentivized to achieve. Mm -hmm. right? So, you know, when we're setting goals in a corporate setting, should any of those goals be have a date of December 31st? <laughs> Probably not, because we're not, you know, very few companies make a lot of progress between Thanksgiving and, and, and the end of the year. Very few. Right. Yeah. So if you haven't hit the goal 
by by mid-November? Are you suddenly going to like, yeah, let's pick up the pace and and then get there? Um, so yeah, from a planning standpoint, from an actioning standpoint, we should be thinking about goals. And, 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 and if all the goals stack up on top of each other, we can't push in all of them at the same time. So some goals should be April, some July, some some November. Now, when it comes to, you know, performance reviews, then sure, we can use December 31st as the evaluating metric for all of those. But that's a different purpose. That's that's the evaluation window. That's not how we plan and, 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 and to, to achieve the goals. And if we're if we're using that, that date should almost never be December 31st. Yeah. So then, you know, January 1st is a meaningful date for individuals, for organizations. I mean, how many organizations have you know, kind of a lean New Year's resolution of you know, like, okay, well, this year, January, we're, we're really going to do 5S well. And then do they fall off the wagon and come around to next year, January, kind of making the same resolution? Yeah, I, I I think that can be pretty common. And, and the the while well, well, the turn of the new year is a time for reflection, I think there can be also some distortion um, in in how we plan, how we think about planning. Right? We can we can be filled with utter disgust at how the year ended, combined with this blind optimism about what what we can do going forward. And you know, I, I like to say no, no big decisions should be made in one sitting and resolutions and goals are the same thing. So I think you, 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 you know, I, I have at least two goals that still have an X where the number should be. And, and, and my goal, my, my action is to decide what that number is sometime in February. Right. And so the, the whole point is, yeah, I have a goal. This is my goal, but I, I just put an X in for what the number is, and I have some some steps I need to take to kind of think about what that number really needs to be. I'm mm-hmm. st- I'm already actioning trying to achieve it, even though I don't know what X is, but I haven't written down X until I kind of took some learning steps to figure out what I need to do. Mm-hmm. So, so to me, I, I think of a goal setting process taking place over a period of time, right? So. Hoshin, Hoshin Connery, policy deployment, lean strategic thinking, whatever you want to call it. There's this concept of catch ball. And this is when there's definitely, we're talking about layers is, hey, I'm going to set a goal. Um, I'm going to lay some stuff out about how we achieve it. I'm going to give it to you. You're going to talk about it. You're going to stress test it. You're going to give it back to me. And we're going to make an adjustment. Um, the whole point of that, besides getting alignment, is to kind of slow it down. And to think clearly about what it's really going to take. Mm. And, you know, I think New Year's goals, New Year's resolutions, goals, personal or team based should be the same thing. Let's start writing down what they should be. Let's start putting some meat on the bones. Let's start laying out some actions. Um, let's let's refine over a period of weeks, maybe even a couple of months. Um, and that's the normal process. And then I think there's some goals that should say, yeah, set a set a Q1 goal. And then at the end of Q1, set a Q2 goal mm. um, based on how much progress you made, but also what you learned. 
Um, cause you just don't know where you're going to be or what your rate of progress is going to be. Yeah. So well, I wish everybody well on any resolutions they made, whether it was, you know, personal or health or work related, or I was going to say also maybe people uh, it'd be interesting if there are any behavioral resolutions in the workplace, you know, let's say related to psychological safety. I, I, re I resolve to reward people for speaking up instead of punishing them. Yeah. And, and, and again, uh, if you just have a good intention, that's one thing, but you have a system or a plan that's going to get you a whole lot further. So, um, so yes, we, we, we wish everyone all the success. Um, and, and I'll, I'll twist that as, uh, you know, we wish everyone all the required investment <laughs> would be your goal because that's, that's usually the hard part. And that's, that's where we, that's where we drop the ball. So yeah. invest the time, the energy into figuring it out, putting your plan together. And we wish everyone all the success in doing that. Yeah. And, and don't give up if you fall short one day, get back into it. One day, one month, one year. Um, has very little to do with your ability to be successful the next time. So, uh, so it's worth it. Learn from it. Uh, take the next steps and move forward. Yeah. Um, speaking of making resolutions, uh, there's one company that probably needs a few. Seems like they're making a few. Um, Seems like they're making a few. Shouldn't happen just because of the first of the year, but uh, at Boeing. Speaking of in the news, um, after the January 5th incident with um, the Alaska Airlines plane where uh, 737 MAX 9 had a what they call a door plug. That was a new term for me. Uh, a door plug uh, basically blew out at 16,000 feet. And thankfully, the plane landed safely. Um, nobody, nobody was killed. There were some injuries, um, I think relatively minor injuries, but it seems like Boeing's New Year's resolution is to do more inspections. So I'm going to give a little bit of a recap of some of this um, aftermath that's been in the news here this week and um, a memo that was published by Boeing on their website. Um, we can link to it in the show notes. Their commercial airplanes president and CEO, Stan Deal, talking a lot about inspections. Um, I haven't heard anything about mistake proofing or prevention, but just to give a quick recap, here's their action plan. It includes more quality inspections, planning additional inspections um, at Boeing and Spirit Aerosystems. That's the uh, separate company, formerly part of Boeing, that makes the fuselage. So it's one more layer of scrutiny on top of the thousands of inspections performed today um, we have in, since 2019, we have increased the number of inspectors by 20%. And then they talk about doing more inspections um, at Spirit, not just the, the bolts on the door plug, but 50 other points in the build process. And nobody knows yet if Spirit built it wrong to begin with, or if the company that took the door plug out to install the Wi-Fi system did they not put it back in? But, you know, people say ultimately Boeing is still responsible for that. But FAA is going to be doing audits. There's going to be outside assessment of Boeing assembly practices. They are welcoming inspectors from the airlines. 
And I wonder now if the inspectors are going to be just tripping over each other. How many people can be simultaneously inspecting if those bolts have been tightened properly? I mean, what, what's your first reaction to some of that, Jamie? Well, you know, the first thing is that, you know, it, it takes time to study systems problems and to develop resolutions. Um, so that's, you know, I'll say, you know, I, I don't want there to be an answer yet. Like, I, sure. I, I don't, you, you can't put 200 people on this problem and get to the answer faster. Um, it should be well studied, researched scientifically, observationally, and we should take our time getting to what really went on. So that's my first reaction. Second is that if we can't get to the root cause, then inspection is at least a stopgap at best, but we say stopgap. And so I don't think inspections are inherently bad when we know a system is failing, right? Right. So, you know, if, if, if traffic lights aren't working, sticking a police officer at the intersection isn't, isn't a bad idea. Right. It's, it, 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 we know that the real system is broken. So we're going to put something in place that ensures bad outcomes. Well, you're making me think um, the risk of trying to mistake proof that by having some barricade that pops up from the ground when the light turns red. Uh, right. Society's decided not to mistake proof running the red light because sometimes police and fire need to. And, yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, sometimes I I think if you can't, or if you haven't figured out how to mistake proof it yet, inspection, like you said, is a stopgap. Um, but you know, inspection, especially if it's, if it's done by humans is imperfect as well. So I, I wouldn't want to completely hang my hat on more inspections. And if double inspections are good, why not triple inspections? And how, how many more inspections would make that, you know, uh, not have anything fall through the cracks? Well, and, and I think you said inspectors would increase by 20%. And, and so that, you know, basically says, well, is that all inspections will get 20% more scrutiny? Are we going to triple our inspections of door plugs, mathematically decrease our inspections of other things? Right. So, you know, we don't know if this and this goes back to root cause and systems understanding. We don't know if this is a, um, you know, a a door plug issue, a fuselage issue or a general assembly issue or or a service issue. Right. Right. And and so, you know, increasing inspectors by 20 percent at least ensures probably that um, missing planned inspections is going to be less likely. Right. Not don't know if that's well, contributed at all, but just, hey, there's never enough resources and at least we'll do what we plan to do if we have more inspectors. Well, there's doing the inspections, but then some of the discussion from former Boeing people who are involved in legal action because they're filing uh, suits saying they were wrongfully fired for being uh, whistleblowers or speaking up about quality issues. I mean, I, it gives me flashbacks to 1995 at General Motors where people would do the inspections and then management would overrule the decision to stop the line because of a quality problem. 
quantity over quality or, you know, schedule is king, you know, kind of mindsets or back at General Motors, literally telling people to not take the time to do the inspections. You know, management would roll the dice with quality. And there are people who make accusations around like, well, um, quality inspectors who are raising issues would, would get reassigned. It will bring in a contractor. It will bring in another inspector. I mean, there, there's a whole layer of alleged management decisions that I wouldn't describe as a worker problem, or like no. not not to rant too much. But I read a piece in Slate uh, online website. I know this guy thought he was being funny, but. You know, he, he he said something about like, well, you know, I fly a lot and I always figured there's a chance I might die in a crash, but I, I'm paraphrasing here, but I didn't want it to be because some idiot didn't tighten the bolts. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, I mean, it's, it's not some individual idiot. It's not, I mean, it's more complex than that. Well, and certainly because, you know, multiple airlines found, found the problem. So that by definition is, is, is likely not the case. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I'd say, you know, I, I do think compared to that GM in the eighties, uh, scenario, nineties, I'm not that old. 90s, yeah. <laughs> um, it was much more common in the eighties, right? Sure. You know, we, the auto industry was heat it, beat it and ship it. Um, that was, you know, just, just get through. I think it's pretty rare. I'm not saying Boeing isn't guilty of this. I'm saying it's pretty rare that companies today knowingly sacrifice quality for delivery. Um, I, I think it's it, it's pretty well accepted um, as just a, an ethos of, of even good profitability that you will be found out with bad quality. So don't don't cut that corner. Um, you know, every one of us can have a, a, a bad moment, but I think the what used to be like production was there to ship it and quality was there to hold them accountable. I think a lot of that is those days are largely over. Um, but, uh, you know, again, there's, there's an exception to everything. doesn't mean that this isn't that exception. Um, the other thing is when we start to look at causes, the, the, I don't say the vast majority, but the majority of the time when you have a systematic problem like this, it's not even assembly, it's design. And I haven't heard any, you know, I, I, I have not read everything on this, partly by intent. Mm-hmm. So like, we don't know SWAT. Like, so, right? well, I, I mean, I think the experts are saying for now, it, it's not a design flaw. It's, it's at some point an assembly defect, defect or um, a reassembly defect. Because I've, I've, I've heard... There are some people saying, if you look at the the value stream, Spirit Aerosystems, formerly Boeing, assembles the fuselage, which includes the door plug on planes that have the door plug instead of another emergency exit, because they don't have enough seats on the plane to require the emergency exit. It's shipped by rail to Boeing. Now, some have said they take the door plug out to give another access point to do the interior assembly, which sounded credible. You got to put in seats and all this yeah. other stuff and more access points would um, probably streamline and, and, and speed up assembly in a good way. 
assuming the door plug is then reinstalled back to original specifications. Um, but then there's that the, 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 the dimension of a different third-party vendor that supposedly takes the completed plane and installs the thing everybody wants, which is Wi-Fi. That that company takes the door plug out to do their wiring and, and installation. You know, so um, it, it could be a possibility. Well, I mean, even if Spirit had assembled it and tightened it incorrectly, the door plug wouldn't fly out when it's traveling by rail, probably. And, you know, and, and then there's that other company involved, and then Boeing is supposed to do the final sign off. So it's complicated by different companies being in that value stream. Right. But even even from a, uh, I'll, I'll call the, uh, you know, so we talk about product design and process design, right? So you kind of go, did did somebody make lots and lots of mistakes over many aircraft, or was there a product design or a process design problem, mm. right? And and so if if uh, if there was a process design failure where we're taking out a plug, putting it back in, there's no spec for how would how to do that that's a process design problem, right? And so, so, you know, again, looking at how are we doing assembly versus how are we, how are we designing the process? Mm -hmm. That's, that's where, you know, th this is worth taking the time to get to root cause because something that's happened to this many units is very rarely just random mistakes. Yeah. Well, we, we don't, I don't know if we know how many, planes have been affected. They, they've, they've grounded them and they're inspecting them, I think for good reason, because on, on the plane in question with the Alaska Airlines flight, they did inspect the right side of the plane door plug, and that had been done properly, right? So this one plane, that one door plug, it could be a one-off freak occurrence, or it could be indicative of well, uh, a common problem. Right, but that's where other airlines, like I believe United, have found other loose bolts on the same door plug. Oh, okay. Thank you. Okay. So that's the that's the fact that there that's the the, the, well, the data that suggests there well, there's a pattern, right? So it's not random variation in December. Right. Right, but then I mean, uh, while we have, um, I'll frame it as an unreliable process that that that's not generating perfect product. Um, I'd rather have the inspections than not. But then it, it raises a question of, is this a broader standard work issue? Is this a bolt issue? Those are not the only bolts on a plane. Spirit Aerosystems has gotten in a lot of trouble for all kinds of manufacturing defects. It, it actually got uh, a CEO fired mm -hmm. um, last year. So, um, yeah, I mean, it just makes me wonder, like, you know, back to the question of, you know, somebody that would blame an idiot worker. So, well, what, what about the standardized work? What about the training? What about the supervision? What about the inspection process? What about the culture? I mean, there's so many other factors where some people I think would oversimplify and say, well, that person needs to just do their job. Right. Well, tightening a bolt is not hard, but like if you're under pressure, to speed up your work and you're not being listened to. And that, that suddenly gets more complicated. Yeah. And that's, and that's, I think, super important around, you know, the difference between one-off 
problems and patterns of problems, and then also the effectiveness of inspections. Right? So you can, you know, if a mistake can happen anywhere in the process, the only way to inspect in quality is to inspect every step in the process, which is a one for one ratio. Mm -hmm. So we do have an instance where this exists is in software. There's a concept called extreme programming mm -hmm. where you know, I'll, I'll save all the details, but like one person is coding while another person is inspecting real time. Or, or uh, some like um, Menlo Innovations, Rich Sheridan, they call it paired programming, which I think is part of the process, right? It's fun. Yeah. So they, they, they didn't invent any of that, but it's, but it's, yeah, you're getting, you know, basically one person's on the, on the keystrokes and the other person is there checking the code, looking for errors real time. Now, writing code, you're not following standard work, right? You're creating. So it's very, very likely. So it's a combination of very likely to have errors and harder to catch them afterwards. So let's, let's yeah. invest two people for every one person's worth of work. By no means are we investing that much in inspection? Yeah. And so the only way inspection works is if we either know what to inspect, right? We know where the risks are. And so we're putting our resources where the risks are. Um, or we're looking at the system itself, which is really what the FAA should be doing, not actually inspecting aircraft, but looking at the system. And neither of those are inherently successful unless we know the root cause. Mm. Right? So I'm not going to complain about more inspectors, but it doesn't mean we've contained the problem. Right. And I'm not going to complain about it, but I will hope and trust that Boeing is also as much as they've tried to embrace lean, uh, which is all secondhand or third hand knowledge to me. Um, I hope they're going to dig more into mistake proofing. And you know, I think the talk of inspections might be as much about optics and PR as it is quality. Because I think people don't understand. I mean, it's, you know, you and I and people listening to this are going to understand these nuances of like, well, sure, uh, inspection versus better mistake proofing. And the, the, the general public is not clued into that. No, and, and and to be honest, because this wasn't a fatal accident, we're not going to be talking about this in a year. So um, just the news cycle isn't, you know, that patient. So um, well, it's fortunate that this happened at 16,000 feet and not 36,000 feet. Some say. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And nobody was sitting at that particular spot, which. Or um, the middle seat, which and that was a pretty full flight, but not those two seats. So, yeah. Yeah. So, um, which is always, that's probably the row I would target. So, you know, probably what would happen to me, but. I don't but, think it was an exit row with your egg, extra leg room for your bad knees. No, no. But that's, that's where, uh, that's where upgrades come into play. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And this, this isn't making me want to, you know, fly, you know, return to the, my old, my old days of flying every week. But, but yeah, I mean, everybody wants to know, what are you doing? And you can't, you can't just say we're problem solving. Right. Sure. Um, they want to know that you're doing something now to protect the public, which is interesting because the flights are grounded. Right. So adding inspectors isn't likely to say lift the lift the flights being grounded for 
737-9s. Right. Well, so it's, it's it, in a lot of ways, it's, it's a containment of a problem that's already contained. In a, yeah, in a way, but yeah, there's the existing planes and the future production, and this is you know Boeing's uh, the seven three seven in general is their highest volume product by far. Um, the order numbers on the Dash Nine Max aren't as high. I don't think American Airlines, who I fly, has many of the seven three seven Max. But you know, after the previous problems and the two crashes, and um, I know I'm not alone and I'm going to start paying attention to, okay, what's the equipment where I, I thought like, all right, well, previous problem been put to bed. <laughs> but um, one, one other thing I was going to bring up though, you know, to the idea of inspection, as much as lean dogma says inspection is waste. It's part of the waste of defects. I've seen organizations get in trouble by taking that to heart and saying, okay, we'll get rid of our inspections, but because they don't have a capable process that's mistake-proofed, defects get to the customer. I'm like, well, that's worse. That's a worse waste than spending more on inspections. And and sort of case in point, even though, I mean, I'm with you to say inspections, a stopgap or a short-term countermeasure, um, and this surprises people sometimes when I say, well, look, I've been to Toyota plants in Japan and San Antonio and Kentucky. And what they all have is a big area with lots of bright lights and lots of people called final inspection. Yeah. For all the talk about building in quality and mistake proofing and, and Judoka and blah, 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 they still have final inspection because I, I, I think rather than falling on dogma, they're being practical and saying, look, we're still not producing perfect quality. Therefore, final inspection is a less harmful waste than letting defects get to the customer. Yeah, a- a- absolutely. And and I, I helped actually helped uh, J.D. Power build their consulting practice to go into automotive manufacturing plants and look at how do you control quality. And, and I have a model called the four loops of quality, which looks at different layers of doing that. But this is also what's wrong with misunderstanding the idea of the seven types of waste, mm-hmm. which is you identify the waste and then you identify the cause of the waste. Yeah. But you can't eliminate the waste without eliminating the cause. So inspection is not one of the seven types of waste, by the way, but it might be wasteful. It's certainly not value added, but it might be necessary right. unless you've eliminated every defect. Right. So that's my, that's my point. It might be necessary. Might be necessary. Right so, yeah. Yeah. Inventory is the same thing. And mm-hmm. it doesn't have zero inventory um, until they improve their set time or their uptime or their lead times or their yields or whatever it might be. Until they improve that, they can't reduce their inventory. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you, you, you see the type of waste and then you go, what's the cause of that? And then you go eliminate the cause. You don't just take out the waste. Yeah. So, so, so that, you know, the, the, the waste is a lens to find underlying mm-hmm. problems. And that's, that's all it is. And so, yeah, inspection is wasteful, um, but it's still necessary. It's still important until you can prove to yourself, let alone the FAA or the customers or anybody else, so you can prove to yourself 
that you yeah. can do something absolutely defect free, especially when it's important, right? And I argue if you have customers, then whatever your work is is important. I don't care if you're a marketing agency or you're selling gum or you know toothpicks or it doesn't matter, right? Whatever it is, customer cares. So until you can prove to yourself you can deliver to the customer without a defect, some inspection is always going to be necessary. And I'll give Boeing credit. I haven't heard any talk around, um, well, we fired the person who was responsible. Like, I haven't heard any scapegoating. I mean, um, Dave Calhoun, the CEO, I think in fairly plain language, admitted Boeing's made mistakes and, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I think this... Uh, you know, as much as an accident does where, you know, half the time with an accident, you know, obviously there's legal concerns with an accident. and Nobody wants to claim culpability. This one's a little easier because damage isn't there. And, you know, still going to be lawsuits. There still are. There already are. Lawsuits, right? but there are for physical and emotional trauma. Right. And and I I, I don't know if that's warranted. I'm not, not going to even go there. But but. But yeah, they've basically said, you know, it doesn't, you know, we're, we we need to figure this out. And I think they seem to be genuinely taking it on the chin mm. um, where they, they acknowledge that this is unacceptable. Um, you know, they, their, their PR instincts may be also kicking in, um, but I don't think it's disingenuous. I, I, you know, I, I do yeah. think it's genuine, but I'm also not sure they have the solution. Um, not sure they're there yet. Boeing has been doing lean for as long as almost any company in North America, but have they been doing it well? And I don't have a lot of indicators to suggest they are. Um, I, I think they, they spent a lot of time on cell design. They spent a lot of time on efficiency. Um, they relied on external consultants forever. They, I'm not sure they ever truly owned it. Um, and and that, that flip from, you know, getting help to we own this, we get this, we're going to drive this, this is part of our DNA. I'm not sure they, you know, as long as they've been on this journey, I'm not sure they ever got there. Well, I mean, you know, there's a difference between implementing lean tools and doing things on the shop floor and really having more of a broad lean culture that other companies are uh, working toward, um, you know, so yeah, I mean, what, what's a, a bunch of Kaizen events, a bunch of lean tools. They famously set up a moving assembly line for airplanes. Cause as I've heard it secondhand or third hand that, you know, a consultant pushed them to do that as opposed to pulsing the plane, like moving it, at a certain frequency, like continuously, very slowly moving assembly line, which I've heard this, this is in the realm of rumor that the, 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 the line only moved continuously when certain executives came to visit. Otherwise they ran it exactly like the old pulsed line. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, superficial lean. And like, to me, lean is not about moving assembly lines. It's, it's more about, culture and leadership and management style. And some companies don't get into that. And, and, and fundamentally, I'll go back to this point, um, but for, for a product this complicated, 
you can't be lean in manufacturing only. Mm-hmm. You, you have to get design there. And I, I, I don't know if they've ever really made any efforts there. I don't, there's, there's very little that I've heard about sort of, I'll say lean product development or just bringing lean into the design culture. Um, heard lots about their manufacturing, their cells. I, I once led a uh, American machine tool builders um, group on a tour at Boeing uh, asked by the, the, uh, uh, the association uh, to do that because Boeing was buying, wasn't buying their equipment. They were making their own. And so I, I did that as a, a favor to the association. Um, but a lot of their lean efforts has been on manufacturing and, you know, you can only go so far in manufacturing with a product that's complex. And so yeah. the, the, the fact is, and this is the same, same news we had when we were doing consulting in automotive plants uh, with JD Power, which is, uh, yeah, we can help you manufacture better. But if you want to improve quality, let's talk about design. Yeah. Time will tell. Um, I'm going to be flying on Friday. I don't know if it's a, going to be a, a Boeing 737 or an Airbus A320 or 321. But, you know, you fly enough and you, you can't help but think about like, well, I, I could die. Odds are really low, right? Yeah, I mean, the odds are very, very low. And I mean, the fact is this happened, it's national news. And yet, you know, how many people died in car accidents today? I mean, it's not going to make the news that this did. So, I mean, the I, drive to the airport is more dangerous. Yeah, no question, right? So when it comes to air, airline safety, we're, we're, we're still far from, from what we experience in automotive safety. Air, or healthcare safety. Or healthcare safety. There we go. Sorry. Um, but yeah, I've always paid attention to the aircraft, mostly because it would tell me a lot about my seat. <laughs> and <laughs> I like room, things like that. But also being an ex-Delta slash, well, I guess still current. I just don't fly very much. But Delta and Northwest uh, loyal customer, you know, watching out for those DC-9 flights <laughs> uh, was was a was a, a a big part of my life for a while <laughs> to avoid those oh yeah i always hated the dc9 flights yeah but i you know they always say i mean takeoff and landing are the most dangerous parts of a flight so taking a non-stop flight reduces your risk of uh i think i learned this from arnie barnett yes from mit our professor, statistics professor, and aviation expert, taking a nonstop flight as opposed to a connection cuts your risk in half. Right. One, one time up, one time down. I, it's just never occurred to me that you could be sitting there and have just part of the fuselage blow out. You know, and it happened once, I think, at a Hawaiian Airlines flight a long time ago. It happens very, very rarely, but I don't think about that. It's more of like as we're taking off, and I, and I still have the scars of growing up in Detroit when the Northwest Airlines flight crashed on takeoff because the flaps were set incorrectly. Mm-hmm. And the plane couldn't get enough lift and it hit a light pole and it crashed and killed everybody on board. But um, a very young infant who uh, miraculously survived. But I think of things like that. I cringe on takeoff sometimes. I'm like, are we getting enough lift? <laughs> <laughs> but then once you get off the ground, you're like, oh, well, we're great as long as there's 
not a plane on the runway when we land. That's the, the Japan uh, Haneda Airport incident that is now not in the news so much because of the Boeing incident. Right. Different still, human factors, different systemic factors. But it's still a safe way to fly, a safe way to travel. It may be a frustrating way to travel these days, <laughs> which is really why I avoid it. But um, but but it is still a very safe way to, to travel. Yeah. So, Well, if, if you weren't driving the Kentucky and back, we wouldn't get chances to hang out in person. That's true. Yeah. That's good, too. Yeah, and those flights were always connected. So I, you know, I had more chances to, uh, not as many chances I, as I have at, at, at driving through the West Virginia mountains. But <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, we haven't solved it today, um, yeah. but um, neither have they. But we can uh, trust for now that uh, they will take their time, get it right, and make this problem go away. But there certainly seems to be some some other underlying issues that are going to take a little more time. Yeah. Well, and and I'll note we recorded this on Tuesday the sixteenth, and we'll probably release it as we tend to do on a Friday, probably the nineteenth. So if things have changed in between. Uh, we apologize for being a couple of days out of date. Sure. And uh, while we're while we're picking aircraft, let's remember that Spirit Aerosystems uh, also supplies uh, Airbus. So. Yeah. Um, plenty of, plenty of risk all around, plenty of safety all around. Yeah. All right. So, um, we're going to end up with a couple of closing fun questions that are football related. Uh, so, so first off, I'll pose this question. Who are you pulling for in the NFL playoffs? We've gotten through what they now call super wild card weekend. Super wild card weekend, which just means one team has a bye, or just two, technically, but two teams, one in each conference, one in each conference. But uh, yeah, I don't know why they need names. It's just playoffs. The playoffs have started. Just yeah. call it what it is. Um, so uh, yeah, so I, I'm going to go with the line now. First of all, you know those that know me know I'm not a big football fan. I've watched more soccer in January than I've watched football all year. So. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm I'm not I'm not a deep football fan, but I lived in Detroit long enough. I got to know enough of the spirit of Detroit, and um, that that I'm I'm absolutely pulling for the Lions. Yeah, um, I think the the uh, the Eminem opening <laughs> about how Detroit needs this is is great. Um, the uh, you know now now I, I'm a I'm a Steelers fan, so if you ask me for my team, it's the Steelers. But honestly, if they were still in it, which they're not, um, I, I just didn't think this was their year. I, I didn't think they just I, – I, I was shocked that they made the playoffs. I don't think they deserved it, but they, they squeaked it, squeaked into the playoffs and they eked out of the playoffs. They, they showed some grit, but that's about it. And I live in an Eagles household, so <laughs> the house, house is filled with Eagles fans. Um uh, the uh, the Eagles' loss was a uh, pretty epic, um, pretty pretty complete. It was it was a part of an end of year collapse. Part right. of an end of year, yeah. They went ten and one, and then went eleven and six, I guess, in total or something. But um, yeah, so almost uh, squeaked in uh, yeah. to playoffs themselves. But um, yeah, so I'm surrounded by Eagles fans. I'm a Steelers fan, but. Even if those two teams were still in it, which they're not, 
Right. I still, I just, you know, I think that, I think the Lions, I don't know if it's their year, but I got to pull for them. Yeah. So like for me, I grew up suburban Detroit going to the Lions games, uh, the Pontiac Silverdome did that a lot was, was really in the football. Now I've lived in the Dallas area long enough and people assume, and I always correct them. No, 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 not. A, I've never really embraced the Cowboys, not a Cowboys fan. When I was doing consulting work in Philadelphia, I really emphasized, Oh, people, where are you from? Dallas, not a, not a Cowboys fan. Like <laughs> just comes out your breath, right? stammering or not. I had to point that out. They're like, Oh, thank you. Um, but, you know, so being a Lions fan is tough because, you know, I turned 50 in October before, was it Saturday? No, Sunday. 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 Early game Sunday. That was the second playoff game they've won in my lifetime. Right. And for people that don't know, the Lions won three championships in the 1950s, but that was pre-Super Bowl era. They're one of a handful of teams that have never been in a Super Bowl. And they they won one playoff game when I was a freshman in college. And then they lost the next game. And then I think they lost the next eight playoff games, a lot of one and dones, if they ever had a decent year. And, you know, they, they went 0-16 one year. But it's a tough existence as a Lions fan. I had kind of gave up on them or said, especially moving around the country, I'm like, I, okay, I'm not going to care about that. When Barry Sanders retired at a pretty young age because he was so frustrated yeah. with everything, I, I kind of gave up on him too. But seeing him on the sideline before the game last night with uh, Eminem and Calvin Johnson, who also retired young, I think out of similar frustration with what they call same old Lions. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, if Barry Sanders is back, I'm back. I, I don't have any other dog in the, in, in the hunt. So yeah, um, I'm excited. I'm going to root for the lions. I'm excited for uh, my, my Detroit friends who I, I, I know this is exciting for them. Yeah. And I used to, so I lived near Matt Millen who was president of the lions through its worst stretch. And he's hated in, in Detroit, right? He hated in Detroit. And, and, um, but, but when he was president of the lions, he, he flew commercial. Uh, Northwest, right? And I, I didn't live here then. I, I would fly out here for other stuff, but I'd, um, he and I would end up on the same plane seated next to each other several times huh. on a regional jet. Yeah. Right? He's, he's a big seven, dude. Yeah. 78 minutes from Allentown to, De- to Detroit. <laughs> and I'm not a narrow guy, and he's a former all pro lineman, right? So, so he and I next to each other in the same row on a regional jet. Those have been some of the most uncomfortable flights ever. But this is when fire Millen chance would right. break out at a University of Michigan basketball game. Like it didn't <laughs> even and they just break out onto a fire Millen chance. So I, I felt bad for the guy. So I felt you got 78 minutes seated next to me where I'm not going to bug you at all. <laughs> so you never talked to him? No, no, we, 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 both, I mean, there were 6 a.m. flights for starters, yeah. but um, no, every time we flew next to each other or his head down, um, yeah, you know, try to, try to get comfortable, squeeze together and, and uh, get our way to Detroit. So, um, yeah, all that time, I'm just like, yeah, this guy probably gets 78 minutes of peace. I'm going to yeah. let him have it. 
Well, good for him. Good for you. <laughs> so go Lions. Go Lions. But then, uh, boy, it would be quite the year uh, if the Lions, not to get too ahead of things, could win it because uh, University of Michigan. University of Michigan. Uh, yeah. So my, my wife and I, uh, after both going to Lehigh, both did master's degrees at Michigan. We had season tickets. Um, you know, she's a bigger fan than I am. Um, but we were, uh, yeah, we were there when uh, uh, Bianca Batuco ran all over Ohio State and knocked uh, Ohio State out of the national title um, with Eddie George. So, yeah, uh, we're the, the whole family had on uh, maize and blue um, and, uh, you know, definitely happy to see a, a, another national title um, first since uh, 97. Yeah. Um, so pretty cool. I already know that the quarterback's moving on and right. That, 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 that young man has, uh, has fight and perspective. I, 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 yeah. I don't usually spend a lot of time respecting young quarterbacks, but I kind of like his approach to approach to a lot of them. Yeah. JJ McCarthy and he's declared for the NFL draft. Uh, the running back Blake Corum has as well remains to be seen. This could change between recording and release. If head coach Jim Harbaugh will go back to the NFL or not, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm happy for Michigan. I, you know, growing up between Detroit and Ann Arbor, you pick a school, you're going to be a Wolverines fan or a Michigan state Spartans fan. I picked Michigan um, really cheered for them. Um, chose Northwestern over Michigan. A lot of my friends from high school went to University of Michigan. Um, I've never had any disdain for U of M the way I do maybe for different reasons, some other big 10 uh, programs, but I, you know, I don't know. Jim Harbaugh always kind of bugs me though. Well, you know, I mean, not as much as Nick Saban. So I, you know, it's <laughs> as we see these coaches retire, I mean, it's, it's hard not to do that without having a massive ego and the, uh, the annoying factors that come along with it. So I'm not sure. There's a lot of college coaches that they come off as endearing. Yeah. But um, yeah, Nick Saban, who retired and surprised a lot of people uh, by doing that recently after they lost to Michigan in the semifinal. But yeah, Nick Saban, about him, um, I mean, he always talks about process and the process. Oh, he, is, he, is a, he is a systems thinker, and I you know, can't stand the guy. Uh, I questioned his ethics, but his ability to run, run a system, uh, not on the field, off the field, right? The whole enterprise, the culture, absolutely outstanding. Now, I, I, I have talked to somebody who works at the University of Alabama in an internal continuous improvement role. And they, they did some sort of event for uh, people internally. And they had Nick Saban as their speaker and this woman who works there. Um, was telling me about it and how he was talking about learning from mistakes. And I'm like, I, she had, I'm like, do you have any poll to, you know, like have him come on my silly little podcast? And she, she did check enough. Somebody in the athletic department communications of like, well, clearly you need to wait until after the, the season. I'm like, well, of course. Yeah. So I don't know. Now that he's retired, I'm going to, I've kind of reached out. I mean, I'll give it some time. I'm still going to hold out. I'm still going to try again. Like, yeah, absolutely. It would, no, it would be amazing to have him there. 
absolutely knows what he's doing. So nothing, nothing, just because he, just because he chose the wrong team. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then, um, boy, next year, 12 teams in the playoff. Any, any thoughts on that? Or just like, yeah, that's well, fun. you know, at least it's a real playoff, right? The, there, there's so much controversy over who makes the top four. Um, that, you know, everybody's, oh, it's rigged and it's this and it's that. I don't, I don't know about any of that. It's, how do you pick a top four? It's, there's somebody's, somebody's going to be left out. Um, but it, it, it basically means conference titles mean very little um, at that point. So it's, it, you know, at some point it's going to look like hockey playoffs. Like it's like, yeah, the regular season doesn't matter at all. Just make the playoffs and then, then perform. I'm not sure if we really need a big 10 and an sec anymore. It's almost, yeah. You, you might as well just make the, the, uh, the, the big 10, the NF, NFC and the sec, the AFC and all the other we, uh, conferences that matter just divide up and split into those groups and just, yeah. And then build your playoffs from there. But yeah, it'll, it'll make the playoffs better, but uh, I, I still miss the old days of the, of the of the bowl games, you know, well, <laughs> where all the bowl games mattered. Um, well, yeah, I mean, the final of Michigan versus Washington was a classic Rose Bowl matchup, but now they're both going to be in the Big Ten. Yep. Yeah. So you know, sports change. Um, I guess we got to roll with it, but uh, I, I don't know exactly how the schedule is going to work um, uh, with 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 twelve teams. It's a, it's a lot of games to play. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm sure it'll be good for money, but well, I, uh, it takes a little bit out of the conference. So. Yeah. I think like the first round playoff games will be hosted at the college stadiums. I would assume so. Yeah. And then they're going to incorporate the bowls. I believe how that's going to work. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's, um, yeah, it, it, it'll, it'll, It'll still limit the bowls and their real impact and, and meaning, uh, but we've already we've already done we've already put the nail in that coffin. So um, once, once you had a, a, any playoff and a national title, everything else was just for 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 your alumni and for a little TV money. Um, yeah. Not quite this the same spirit it used to have, but you know that's sports evolve and. Uh, um, there'll be some, some good and some bad that comes out of the whole thing. Yeah. Well, we shall see. So, um, great talking to you as always. I hope you enjoyed your knob creeks. I, I did. I, I, as I tend to do, I finished the nine saving, you know, savoring the, the, the 12, um, you know, so I'll, uh, didn't quite finish it, but I'll, I'll finish it when we're done. Well, we have a little bit left in the glass to cheers too. Absolutely. So cheers to you. The sound effect of my glasses clinking. Thanks, Jamie. Thank you. Be well. You too. You're welcome. Yeah. Siri chimed in. Did you hear that? I did. <laughs> Siri said, you're welcome. I We didn't ask you, but all right. Thanks. Well, Thank you. Thanks Siri for listening. Siri must be drunk. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Lean Whiskey. To learn more or find more episodes, visit leanwhiskey.com. Spelled either K-E-Y or K-Y. 
You can also visit leanblog.org slash leanwhiskey or jakelynch.com slash leanwhiskey. Look for us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. We are very grateful for every rating, review, and follow. Until our next episode, cheers. Cheers.